Welcome to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation of Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Wednesday, June 2nd, 2021, and we are live. Hope everybody's doing well today. Well, it's been a very, very busy day, and uh, we see that some of the coverage dealing with the 100th commemoration of the Tulsa Race Massacre. We see a lot of the coverage has concluded. There's still articles being written, but we know yesterday was the um, uh, was the 100th commemoration. And on yesterday's show, I talked about the documentary uh, Tulsa Burning, the 1921 Tulsa race, the 1921 race massacre that aired on the History Channel uh, on uh, May 30th. Okay, that was uh, Sunday, Sunday, May 30th. And a lot of people saw it. I watched it. uh, I watched it three and a half times and I recorded it. Uh, I've taken so far five pages of notes. Uh, on the on the documentary, and on yesterday's show, I was sharing with you some of my thoughts from some of my notes, and we were dealing with some of the history that was covered. We're going to continue that discussion today, and then also today um, on yesterday's show, I talked about um, Biden's speech in Tulsa, and I talked about the. Uh, plan that he laid out to combat the racial wealth gap. So be sure to watch the show from um, Tuesday, June 1st. Okay. Here on our Facebook fan page, the African history network, the African history network. Then also on my YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I M H O T E P. Um, there's a fact sheet at whitehouse.gov. Uh, when we got done with yesterday's show, uh, I was doing more research. There's a fact sheet there. We're going to go over that fact sheet. And then Andre Perry from the Brookings Institute. Um, on yesterday's show, I talked again about the dealing with uh, the uh, home ownership gap in African-Americans, uh, redlining and, and uh, wanted to increase home ownership of African-Americans uh, and also addressing discrepancies uh, with appraisal value of homes and how African-American homes are valued uh, at $48,000 less on average to comparable white homes. Uh, and this is uh, African-American homes in general are valued at $156 billion less than white homes. We talked about this uh, on yesterday's show. So Andre Perry of the Brookings Institute, who headed up the uh, study that dealt with the discrepancy in home ownership values for African American homes. He was interviewed today on MSNBC by Stephanie Rule. Then also he was interviewed by Axios.com to talk about uh, the agenda and graded and, and and talk about what's in it. So I'm going to share some of that interview with you as well. It's very very important. And this ties into how politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources. 
and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, the adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. This really ties into the impact of laws and policies, okay? And especially when it comes to combating these uh, structural inequities, these structural inequities, okay? And this is all the result of racism. Racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race that comes out of the ideology of, uh, of uh, European white supremacy. Racism occurs when one race of people control the majority of the wealth, power, resources, benefits, privileges, land, access to education, access to opportunity, and they use it to marginalize, subordinate, and do harm to another race of people. Okay, racism has nothing to do with not liking people or calling people racial epithets or calling people the N-word. That's bigotry. Okay, racism is a power structure. So when we talked uh, on uh, yesterday's show, when I showed you this article here, and we've talked about it a number of times here on this show, because this is the type of information we deal with, uh, how a segregation tax is costing black American homeowners $156 billion. How a segregation tax is costing black American homeowners $156 billion. A new Brookings Gallup report finds residential property in majority black neighborhoods is consistently undervalued. Now, this study is from November 2018, okay, but it's still relevant. And Andre Perry is uh, uh, referenced uh, uh, in this uh, article. This, well, the name of the study is, is the devaluation of assets in black neighborhoods, the case of residential property. The devaluation of assets in black neighborhoods, the case of residential property. All right. Okay, so we'll discuss that. Uh, we'll continue those discussions on today's show. Then, um, Tulsa Mayor G.T. Bynum, Tulsa Mayor G.T. Bynum, uh, he's a Republican, white male Republican, Mayor of Tulsa, Oklahoma. He is against paying reparations. To the, to the survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre and to the descendants of survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre. But his family owned 931 slaves. He's against paying reparations to the survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre, the three survivors, okay, Benningfield and uh, 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 Hughes and and Viola Fletcher. He's against paying reparations to the three survivors. Not 3,000 survivors, not 300 survivors, not 30, but three survivors. He's against paying reparations to the three survivors. He's against paying reparations to the descendants of the survivors. But his family owned 931 slaves. And when you go, when you hear this information I'm about to share with you, his family goes back to owning slaves back to like 1669 and accumulated wealth over hundreds of years. He's the mayor of Tulsa, Oklahoma. GT Bynum, yeah, you don't wanna miss this. Okay, so on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world, because right now it's correct your own behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with 
is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you can control the circumference of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. We don't deal with much of gossip and all that nonsense. But we deal with current events in history, politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828 to sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828 to sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All of my DVD lectures and digital downloads are at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, you can still register for the online course that I teach on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's a nine-week uh, online course, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. We do with thousands of years of history. And we do what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place also. All right. Uh, I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have uh, book references, articles, video clips. We do with thousands of years of history, ancient Africa. Uh, we do with the 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors. With the Moors taken to Europe, the teachings from ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt, they take this into Europe. This brings Europe out of the Dark Ages. And we do with what led up to the transatlantic slave trade. All, we do the class live on Saturdays. All the sessions are recorded. You can go back and watch it over and over again. You'll still have access to the course even after the course ends. I just posted a link here. You can register for it. It's uh, 54% off. It's on sale $60. We're about halfway through the course. It's regularly $130. As soon as you register, you can start watching the content. It's also at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All right. I want to jump into uh, this first topic here. I, I, I want to go to, we're going to go to clip one, Shakita, right before the break. We'll go to clip one right now. So I did not get a chance to share this clip on yesterday's show. We had so much information. And I was sharing notes dealing with the documentary because um, with the documentary, I look at it differently because I'm a historian. So all these things are running through my head. I, I've only watched, uh, going back through watching it, I think I'm like 30 minutes through the documentary and I have five pages worth of notes. So <laughs> I'm going to watch it some more to tomorrow, right? To take notes. But on the cross connection with Tiffany Cross, MSNBC, on um, Saturday, May 29th, she was broadcasting from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And she uh, was with us. She was. Uh, talk, talking to her panel, uh, Angela Rye, uh, Dr. Jelani Cobb. Uh, but she also shared a segment of an interview she did with Mayor G.T. Bynum of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, let's go to this clip, Shakita. Is a role uh, for, for white people to have a place in this conversation. Right. I want you to take a listen. Uh, I was able to speak with Mayor G.T. Bynum. Um, he is the Republican mayor here, and uh, you have a very interesting report um, that we'll talk about on the other side, but I asked him about his own connection uh, to racism and enslavement in this country. I want you to take a listen. 
with you specifically, the Bynum family, uh, you, I'm sure you know, um, enslaved nearly a thousand people. Um, and you inherited that wealth from the family where the African-Americans here in the community had their wealth taken from them. So when you say no cash payout, I think people look at it and say, well, wow, you inherited wealth, you inherited your position in life because of uh, enslaving people who look like me. How do you reconcile saying, yeah, but that was then, and we don't owe you anything for that now? Because you're asking me about reparations for an event that was a criminal act a hundred years ago. Right. But something that your family benefited from, the system of enslavement, of systemic racism. So can you imagine how the descendants of the enslaved look at your position in life compared to their own? And here you say, well, no, cash payouts make people uncomfortable. I assume you mean the white people of Tulsa and people who... All right, so I should note that we did get a response from the mayor's office, and he says he doesn't know anything about this uh, and uh, did not really address, as you see uh, in my question, his own family's connection to enslavement. But you were the reporter to uncover this, so talk a bit, if you will, about what you uncovered and, if you will, uh, respond to what he said. Wow, um, I am blown away by his response. Um, We want to reconcile, right? We had a race war here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the seeds of that horrible behavior were born in institutional slavery. And here's the thing about Mayor G.T. Bynum's family that we found out. Um, First of all, when you come from wealth, when you come from a powerful political family, you have, your history is thoroughly recorded um, and so, you know, what we found is that at the end of the 1860 uh, slave schedule, Mayor G.T. Bynum's family, his, the descendants of, of the first Bynums that came to Jamestown in 1616, they had a total of 931 enslaved people. And so you think about that wealth. You think about, uh, as a descendant, my family only had 56 years to build our wealth from 1865 to 1921. Hey, pause it, pause it right there. Uh, we're coming up on a break. I want to share, pause it right there. Pause it right there. We're coming up on a break. Uh, we're going to continue this on the other side of the break. Uh, back it up about a minute or two, uh, Shakita. You listen to the African History Network show right here on 910A on the Superstation. Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is uh, Wednesday, uh, June 2nd, 2021, and we are live. Hope everybody's doing well. Um, everybody share this broadcast on your social media platforms. Invite your friends to tune in also. Okay, so right before the break, I, I was sharing a uh, segment from the Cross Connection, uh, Tiffany Cross's show on uh, MSNBC. And this is from Saturday, May 29th. She's broadcasting in uh, Tulsa. And we're talking about the mayor of Tulsa, the white mayor of Tulsa, G.T. Bynum, Okay. And in this segment, uh, they talked about how 
he is against cash payments or reparations for the descendants of um, of the Tulsa race massacre for, for the survivors or the descendants of the Tulsa race massacre. But he is um, his family owned 931 slaves. OK, and he comes from wealth and a lot of that wealth was accumulated from ownership of enslaved Africans. All right. Uh, I want to go back to back to this clip and you're going to hear from uh, Nehemiah Frank. Nehemiah Frank uh, is a journalist who uh, has done this research on uh, Mayor G.T. Bynum's uh, family. OK, let's go back to this clip, Shakita. think about uh, as a descendant my family only had 56 years to build our wealth from 1865 to 1921 just 56 years his family had from 1619 or from 1666 when we have confirmed uh, you know slave involvement in his family all the way to 1865 just think about that. It's, it's unbelievable. So, yeah. I was going to just say the other thing that's important to note is the history of mayors and his family Absolutely. as well. So let's also be clear that there is an economic and a political connection to the continued oppression and the privilege um, for white folks, right? So as we sit in the heart of Greenwood right now, we're sitting in an area where black people don't own any of the buildings. You know what I mean? Like in, in, in 1921, we owned this entire area. We don't own anything here now. That's something that he can resolve through policy. That's something that must be resolved through policy to get back to the heart of your first question, right. right? Like, and it needs to happen at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level. They're not even willing to do that. They set up, right. set up a commission here that raised $30 million, and they can't find a penny of that to go to the survivors or to even ensure economic development that benefits black people. Absolutely. Yeah, and we should note the commission has been, uh, they canceled their events. However, the Legacy Fest, which is run by the actual descendants right. uh, and, and black uh, residents of the community continues. Uh, Delani, you wanted to wait. Yeah. I mean, the prosecutor is a fundamental moral one. The people are seeking absolution from history. And when you seek absolution from the worst atrocities of history, and we know this well, what you do is facilitate the replication of those atrocities in the present. So it's not coincidental that we're having this conversation about Tulsa and having this conversation about January 6th. Or we could say this conversation about Charlottesville, or this conversation about Charleston, or this conversation about El Paso, or this conversation about Pittsburgh. That the vector of hatred moves through history that's transmitted by denial. Yeah. And so when we're talking about this, it's, it's, it's presumed that we're coming from a critical place. We're coming from a place of salvation yeah. in the effort to make sure that we don't see these actions repeated ad infinitum. We don't want three generations from now for people to come up and say we're having the 150th, the 200th, right. the 250th commemoration of what happened in Tulsa and the complicated, compounded atrocities that will have happened in the intervening time. Absolutely. Okay, pause it right there. Pause it right there. Pause, pause it right there, Shakita. And we're gonna we're gonna play that clip again. So recue that up for me, please. So th- 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 this is powerful. What we just heard, okay? And it has a lot to do with the condition of African Americans in Tulsa today, 
And also African-Americans in Tulsa have a life expectancy six years shorter than white people in Tulsa. This is this is from the cross connection from Saturday. And I had this segment ready to play on yesterday's show, but we just had so much information. Um, we didn't get a chance to get to it. So this is why I have this. The first this is clip number one today. I want to make sure we squeeze this in. The, the name of this clip is the impact of the Tulsa massacre 100 years later. The impact of the Tulsa massacre 100 years later. Now, Mayor G.T. Bynum, he did, um, let's see, uh, uh, June 1st, uh, there was an article I was reading. You know, he um, he did, a, uh, he apologized uh, for the Tulsa race massacre, right? But he's against any type of reparations. Most of the land that African-Americans used to own in Greenwood, that land is now owned by the city of Tulsa. Then you find out, as Nehemiah Frank laid out here in this clip, and we're going to play it again for you because there's so much to take in. And then because, see, I knew a lot about the history of Greenwood and Tulsa before this week. But I've been doing extensive research, even deeper research. And there's some other things I learned. So probably about 85 percent of the things that. You see in the media and stuff like that. I already knew uh, a lot. The, the documentary from the History Channel is probably the most extensive one. Um, a lot of what was in there I already knew, but it goes even deeper. Okay, because like I said, I read Hannibal, Hannibal B. Johnson's book um, back in 2014. I read this book twice. All right, this is probably the best book, uh, excluding his new one that just came out, dealing with the 100th commemoration, Black Wall Street from Ride to Renaissance in Tulsa's historic Greenwood District. And Hannibal B. Johnson has been all over uh, the media the past few days. But Nehemiah Frank said, what we found is that at the end of the 1860s, slave schedule, at the end of the 1860s slave schedule, Mayor G.T. Bynum's family had a total of 931 enslaved people. And so you think about that wealth a total of 931 enslaved Africans. And so you think about that wealth. He said, my family only had 56 years to build our wealth. May, uh, according to the research, Mayor G.T. Bynum's family was enslaving Africans going back to 1669. Angela Rye said, there have been a number of mayors of cities and Mayor G.T. Bynum's family also. So when you come from wealth and then you come from a political dynasty, that gives you that gives you a, a leg up in life, a few legs up, actually. OK, in life. But then he's afraid he, he, he's against paying reparations to the survivors. Now. Tulsa, the, the whole city of Tulsa. It's something like about 400,000 people. It's only 7% African-American. It appears that this is an attempt to appease white people. It appears that this is some type of attempt to appease white people. Now, he's a Republican and he's a Trump supporter. I, I want to go back to this clip again here. Uh, let's go back to this again. Uh, uh, press play, Shakita. have a 
place in this conversation. Right. I want you to hey, take uh, uh, I, I think go back go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning and take it off mute. Uh, go back to the beginning and press play, take it off mute. Let's go. to have a place in this conversation. Right. I want you to take a listen. Uh, I was able to speak with Mayor G.K. Bynum. Um, he is the Republican mayor here. And uh, you have a very interesting report um, that we'll talk about on the other side. But I asked him about his own connection uh, to racism and enslavement in this country. I want you to take a listen. With you specifically, the Bynum family, uh, you, I'm sure you know, um, enslaved nearly a thousand people. Um, and you inherited that wealth from the family, where the African Americans here in the community had their wealth taken from them. So when you say no cash payout, I think people look at it and say, well, wow, you inherited wealth, you inherited your position in life because of uh, enslaving people who look like me. How do you reconcile saying, yeah, but that was then, and we don't owe you anything for that now? Because you're asking me about reparations for an event that was a criminal act 100 years ago. Right. But something that your family benefited from, the system of enslavement, of systemic racism. So can you imagine how the descendants of the enslaved look at your position in life compared to their own? And here you say, well, no, cash payouts make people uncomfortable. I assume you mean the white people of Tulsa. And people who. All right, so I should note that we did get a response from the mayor's office, and he says he doesn't know anything about this uh, and uh, did not really address, as you see uh, in my question, his own family's connection to enslavement. But you were the reporter to uncover this, so talk a bit, if you will, about what you uncovered and if you will uh, respond to what he said. Wow, um, I am blown away by this response. we want to reconcile, right? We had a race war here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the seeds of that horrible behavior were born in institutional slavery. And here's the thing about Mayor GT's, GT's, GT Bynum's family that we found out. Uh, first of all, when you come from wealth, when you come from a powerful political family, you have uh, his, your history is thoroughly recorded. Uh, and so, you know, what we found is that at the end of the 1860 uh, slave schedule, Mayor G.T. Bynum's family, his, the descendants of, of the first Bynums that came to Jamestown in 1616, they had a total of 931 slave people. And so you think about that wealth. You think about, uh, as a descendant, my family only had 56 years to build our wealth from 1865 to 1921. Just 56 years. His family had from 1619 or from 1666 when we have confirmed, uh, you know, slave involvement in his family all the way to 1865. Just think about that. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I was going to just say the other thing that's important to note is the history of mayors and his family Absolutely. as well. So let's also be clear that there is an economic and a political connection to the continued oppression and the privilege 
um, for white folks, right? So as we sit in the heart of Greenwood right now, we're sitting in an area where black people don't own any of the buildings. You know what I mean? Like in, in, in 1921, we owned this entire area. We don't own anything here now. That's something that he can resolve through policy. That's something that must be resolved through policy to get back to the heart of your first question, right. right? Like, and it needs to happen at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level. They're not even willing to do that. They set up, right. a, set up a commission here that raised $30 million, and they can't find a penny of that to go to the survivor or to even ensure economic development that benefits black people. Absolutely. Yeah, and we should note the commission has been uh, to cancel their events. However, the Legacy Fest, which is run by the actual descendants yes. right. uh, and, and black uh, residents of the community, continues. Uh, Jelani, you wanted to wait. Yeah. So, I mean, the problem is, is a fundamental moral one. The people are seeking absolution from history. And when you seek absolution from the worst atrocities of history, and we know this well, what you do is facilitate the replication of those atrocities in the present. So it's not coincidental that we're having this conversation about Tulsa and having this conversation about January 6th, or we could say this conversation about Charlottesville, or this conversation about Charleston, or this conversation about El Paso, or this conversation about Pittsburgh. That the vector of hatred moves through history that's transmitted by denial. Yeah. And so when we're talking about this, it's, it's, it's presumed that we're coming from a critical place. We're coming from a place of salvation in the effort to make sure that we don't see these actions repeated ad infinitum. We don't want three generations from now for people to come up and say we're having the 150th, the 200th, right. the 250th commemoration of what happened in Tulsa and the complicated, compounded atrocities that will have happened in the intervening time. Absolutely. Okay, excellent, excellent reporting there from uh, Tiffany Cross on location in Tulsa. It's just mind-boggling, right? It's just mind-boggling. And this is why it's so important to understand history. This is why it's so important for the correct history to be taught in schools, because whoever controls the teaching of the past will control the trajectory of the future. This is why you see 13, 14 states passing laws, including Oklahoma, including Governor Kevin Stitt, Republican governor of Oklahoma, passing a law banning the teaching of critical race theory. But most of them can't tell you what critical race theory is. They're just lumping into a bag things dealing with racism, systemic racism, things like this that they don't like. Because they're trying to restrict what can be taught in schools. So I want to go to, we talked about this on yesterday's show. Uh, we'll probably talk about this uh, some more on tomorrow's show as well. Uh, uh, Tulsa burning. And let me close some of this out here. Okay. We'll probably talk about this some more tomorrow because I'm only through page one of five notes so far. Uh, so we left off yesterday talking about after Reconstruction. So between 1890 and 1900, this is the Tulsa burning 1921 race massacre uh, documentary that aired on the History Channel. You can go to history.com. You can watch it there at history.com. They also have some clips uh, as well of the documentary on YouTube. Uh, History Channel put it there on YouTube. And, um, you know, I just got to I, I just got to ask a question. I, I just have to take it here. OK, I've seen a whole lot of white media making money off of Tulsa. 
are they donating any of that money to the survivors? I'm just asking. I'm not saying they aren't. I'm not saying they aren't, but the History Channel, CNN, PBS, I'm just just the ones having documentaries. The History Channel, CNN, uh, public broadcasting system, all, all these people, all the media down in Tulsa. All uh, white media down in Tulsa. Stories, all this, historians, that they, they, they're having white historians talking about Tulsa, all this stuff. Are they donating any of this money to, to the three survivors and the descendants? I'm just, uh, I'm just, because I'm sitting back looking at all this stuff. Let's see. It, it, my my degree's in business, so I count money. I'm I'm looking at all this stuff. I'm like, wait a second, hold on, wait a second, hold on, hold on. You you're, you're selling advertising during History Channel had advertising during the documentary. Now I know it takes money to make the documentary. I understand all that. I, I, I understand it, but I'm just damn. I'm like, hold on, wait a minute. Is, is any of this money going to these black people? Okay, just asking. So, <laughs> but. But between 1890 and 1900, as many as 100,000 African-Americans migrated from the South to what was known as Indian Territory out West, like Oklahoma. They're trying to escape the, 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 uh, the, the, the segregation. And even though Pleasy versus Ferguson hasn't happened yet in 1896, but we're leading to that. We're going into the grandfather clause of 1898, where, uh, uh, as a way to get around the Fifteenth uh, Amendment of uh, 1870, and try to exclude African American men from voting, they put in a clause saying if your grandfather could not vote because of you know he was a slave, then that means you can't vote. All right, so they're instituting uh, the uh, they're instituting these clauses. Okay, so they're trying to escape from all this and look for a better way of life. So from 1890 to uh, 1900, 100,000 African-Americans uh, migrate into out west into uh, Indian territory, and a lot of them go into Oklahoma. Now, after Reconstruction, Southern, Southern states started to pass laws to further control the, uh, uh, further control the movement of African-Americans, uh, and these were called black codes, okay? So we're going to see this... Uh, take place as well. All right. And they're trying to, they're trying to escape uh, from this. They want to own land. They're trying to get, uh, get away from sharecropping, trying to get away from terrorism, uh, et cetera. And they want to, they want a better way of life. So they're going, uh, uh, many of them are going out West. All right. Now, uh, okay, let me go to page two. All right. So we know the KKK was founded December 24th, 1865 in Pulaski, Tennessee. You're going to have other uh, uh, domestic terrorist organizations targeting African-Americans, targeting white Republicans as well. The Klan wasn't just killing African-Americans. They were also killing white Republicans uh, who, who were helping African-Americans. They were killing them as well. OK, uh, we know from 1882 to uh, 1968. Uh, 4,700, there were 4,743, uh, recorded lynchings in this country. Uh, 1,297, uh, were white people being lynched. All right. Uh, NAACP.org has, uh, information there. 
uh, dealing with lynching. Just search at NAACP.org, which is their official website. Just search for lynchings. Now, there was one uh, African-American man who is going to uh, move out west and move in the Oklahoma Territory. His name was Townsend Jackson, Townsend Jackson. He was an African-American uh, policeman, and he was known as CAP, C-A-P, known as CAP. He's going to move into Oklahoma um, around 1899. He moved into the Oklahoma Territory. So once again, at this time, Oklahoma's Indian Territory is not a state in the Union yet. African-Americans and Native Americans did not want Oklahoma to become a state in the Union because they knew that once it becomes a state in the Union, the, the segregation laws would be imposed and it would limit the opportunities for African-Americans. Oklahoma becomes a state in the Union in 1907. Oil was discovered in 1905 in Tulsa. Oil is going to be discovered in Tulsa becomes known as the oil capital of the uh, of America. All right. And once oil is discovered, you're going to have so many people going into Tulsa, African-Americans and white. OK, flocking to Tulsa. Um, one of the things that, that was, I think was really good about the uh, documentary and it's a uh, uh, Tulsa rise in the 1921 uh, race massacre. They have um, memoirs that some never released before. Memoirs, uh, information for people's diaries, letters, things like this that are read. So they and and it, so they bring these ancestors, even though you don't hear their actual voice. They bring uh, a lot of this to life. OK, we know that um, uh, Stanley Nelson is, uh, uh, is the director. We know this uh, documentary is executive produced by NBA superstar and philanthropist Russell Westbrook and directed by Stanley Nelson, uh, award winning uh, documentarian Stanley Nelson, um, as well as uh, Marco Williams. OK, so these are just some things that I noticed um in the in the documentary now uh, townsend jackson uh, t uh they have his granddaughter wilhelmina guess how uh his, his granddaughter she's uh, uh she gets i guess she recorded this information and you uh hear the recitation of her memoir he told his wife i'm going to indian territory and if I can find a place for us to live, I'll uh, I'll send for you. OK, now, Indian Territory was already populated by Native Americans and African-Americans. They have been living there for generations. They have been living there for generations. Contrary to popular belief, because I've been seeing some information floating around saying, OK, in, in Tulsa, they were all self-sufficient. They built all this themselves. They didn't have government help, things like this. That's not true. A lot of the early African-American landowners, and you've heard me talk about this before, a lot of the early African-American landowners in Tulsa got their land because of the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866, because of those Indian treaties of, uh, of 1866, all right? I already see we're going to go over on tonight's show. I really didn't want to go over because I'm tired, but some of this stuff just may have to wait till tomorrow. 
because I, I just have so much information here. Uh, <laughs> but I want to flip over to uh, this article. It's a really good article from uh, History.com, Nine Entrepreneurs Who Helped Build uh, Tulsa's Black Wall Street. Nine Entrepreneurs Who Helped Build Tulsa's Black Wall Street. And it ties into a lot of this history as well. Okay. So uh, let, let me flip over to this one here. Because this is why, and, and in doing research on Tulsa back in uh, 2014, when I was uh, uh, doing research for my lecture, I saw how all this history came together. This is why you have to understand the chronology of history. Okay. And, and the other thing is, there was a small Native American population that lived in Greenwood. Okay, it wasn't an all black town, it was predominantly black, but you have to keep in mind Tulsa was founded in about 1834 by Creek Indians who get pushed off of their land in the southeastern United States because of the Indian Removal Act, signed into law May 28, 1830, by President Andrew Jackson. Tulsa comes from the Creek Indian word Talasi. Tulsa comes from the Creek Indian word Talasi. So when you study this history, you get into a deep history of African-Americans and Native Americans. But if we look at uh, this article here, uh, this is uh, nine entrepreneurs who helped build Tulsa's Black Wall Street. This, this is from May 14, 2021, history.com, history channel, official web, history.com, official website of the history channel. Okay. Um, African-Americans and land ownership in Oklahoma. African-Americans and land ownership in Oklahoma. Before the Greenwood District was established, it's going to be established about 1905. Before the Greenwood District was established, African-Americans came to Oklahoma in the mid-19th century as slaves of the five civilized tribes of Native Americans. The five civilized tribes of Native Americans. The term now, because African people have been in this land that we call the United States of America, going back at least fifty-one thousand seven hundred years. And Dr. David M. Hotep deals with this in his book, "The First Americans Were Africans: Documented Evidence." He deals with this in his book, "The First Americans Were Africans: Documented Evidence." We, we were here in this land that we call United States of America going back, going back at least 51,700 years ago before Native Americans even came into existence. These were the Khoisan who have the oldest DNA on the planet. They come from Southern Africa. Okay, it's possible African people were already in the Oklahoma Territory going back tens of thousands of years. Okay, that's possible. But I'm talking about the 19th century. Okay, so African-Americans came to Oklahoma in the mid-19th century as slaves of the five civilized tribes and Native Americans. The term used for the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole tribes who were forced from their lands in the southeastern part of the United States, resettling in Oklahoma, then known as Indian Territory. After the U.S. Civil War, which is 1861 and 1865, under the terms of the Treaties of 1866, 
These African-Americans were emancipated with some integrating into the tribes, a relationship that would later provide freedmen with their own land, a, a relationship that would later provide freedmen with their own land. So the former slaves of these five civilized tribes of Native Americans, because of the Indian treaties of 1866, specifically what we call the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866. These people are going to get land allotments. Many of the early African-American landowners in Tulsa, Oklahoma, got land because of these treaties. Okay, in, in the, in the uh, documenting from the History Channel, they talk about this there. See, a lot of people don't notice. They think they think this. This is not taking anything away from what our ancestors did. They just think that they just went there and just economic empowerment and, and we benefited from segregation, and all this stuff. No, you, you got to go back before 1905. You have to go back into the mid 19th century. Go back into the, the, the mid 1800s. The relative wealth of some of the black folks in Oklahoma comes in part through their connection to the tribes and their land ownership, says Hannibal B. Johnson, historian and author of Black Wall Street 100, An American City Grapples with this Historical Racial Trauma. That's his new book, The Dawes Allotment Act, D-A-W-E-S, The Dawes Allotment Act, named after Senator Henry L. Dawes of Massachusetts. The Dawes Allotment Act of 1887 authorized the government to, to divide tribal territories into allotments for individual Native Americans, which included black members of those Native American tribes, of those Native American nations. As word spread that Indian territory was a safe place for African Americans to settle, between 1865 and 1920, more than 50 black townships were founded in Oklahoma. That's back to those treaties. Those treaties are still on the books. Those treaties are still being enforced for the Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians. This is something Dr. Claude Anderson has been talking about, one of my teachers, Dr. Claude Anderson. I've interviewed him about this some years ago. All those interviews are archived, okay? Those treaties are still on the books. Going back to uh, about 1941, African-Americans get pushed out of those treaties. Some of us are going to have our land taken away. Roland Martin, he's, he was broadcasting um, uh, leading up to June 1st. He was broadcasting from Tulsa. One of those days he interviewed, let's see, I was on the show May 28th. So May 27th, Thursday, May 27th, he's on location at Tulsa. He interviews a sister who's a descendant of those uh, black freedmen of the Creek Indians. She talked about how her family own 400 acres of land they get this land basically from those treaties and they get pushed out of the treaties they get pushed out of the creek indian nation and their land taken away from them this is going to happen you had uh in the cherokee nation around 2011 or so you, um black the descendants of black freedmen were pushed out of the cherokee nation stripped of their rights and things like this they had to sue to get all that back and become part of the Cherokee Nation again. This is a deep history. This is why we have to understand the chronology of history and the people's history and culture teaches them how to deal with the problems of the past in the present and the future to meet the needs of the community. This deals with understanding laws and policies and treaties. All this comes together. All this is connected. 
All right. If you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network because we definitely need your support. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. Uh, I'll be in Atlanta June 18th through the 20th, Friday, June 18th through Sunday, June 20th at Centennial Park for the uh, Juneteenth uh, Music Festival, okay, the three-day Juneteenth Music Festival. I'll be speaking there on Saturday and Sunday, 3 p.m. at the Amphitheater. I'll have a vendor booth there as well, so come out and support. Uh, visit JuneteenthATL.com for more information, JuneteenthATL.com uh, for more information. And we'll have this information at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Register for the online course that I teach on Saturdays. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'a for understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Uh, we, ha we have that at our website as well, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Those watching on Facebook and YouTube, keep watching. We're going to keep broadcasting for a few more minutes. Remember, right now is correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. All right, stand by. Okay. Now, I haven't even gotten halfway through the information I <laughs> wanted to talk about today. So... Some of this stuff we just gonna have to do tomorrow. I only have so much energy, and I have a lot, I have a lot of work to do. Um, how's everybody doing? Okay, we're gonna keep going for a few more minutes. Uh, we got Dread, Mark, um, and it was the it, I know there was the Muscogee Creek Indians. I know they're gonna own slaves now. All Creek Indian nations own slaves. Uh, African slaves. I know the Red Tail, Professor James Small told me the Red Tail Creek Indians didn't own slaves, but we know in, in, in this research I've been doing the past few days, we know the Muscogee Creek Indians. They're there in Oklahoma. They owned African slaves. All right. Um, who still needs to register for the online course that I teach on Saturdays, 12 noon, the 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, uh, what they didn't teach you in school. If you click right here, we're going to post the link. You go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. It's right on the homepage of the website. And um, you scroll down. Let me flip over here. Okay, how you doing? We have people watching from Vegas. We have people watching from outside the country. Everybody share this broadcast on your social media platforms. Okay, invite your friends to tune in as well. Okay, Rashad, thanks for your donation, Rashad, through Cash App. When you all do it through Cash App, be sure to type in the AHN show, S-H-O-W. Type in the whole thing, okay? The AHN show, S-H-O-W. Somebody set up a fake uh, African History Network um, uh, Cash App account, and it's similar to mine. Uh, so you have to type in the whole thing, and it'll show... It'll show my picture there and it'll say Michael. That's why you type in the AHN show, S-H-O-W. Make sure you type in the W. So if you go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, right on the homepage, it has information for our daily radio show. We're here Monday through Friday, 11 p.m. to midnight. Eastern Standard Time, Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Click here to listen to podcasts uh, of the shows. We have over 1,000 podcast archives. Download the iHeartRadio app. You can listen to 9, 10 a.m. the Superstation WFDF live. You can listen to our show when we're on live as well. Click here to read articles that I've written, information here for the online course, and we have the flyer here. We also have a Facebook event invite uh, uh, on our Facebook fan page. Next class is uh, Saturday, June 5th, 2021, 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. 
when you go to the next page click right here to enroll okay and uh you can go ahead and enroll uh, the course is uh 54 off it's on sale uh sixty dollars uh, we do the class live all the sessions are recorded you can go back and watch it over and over again okay so as soon as you register you can watch last uh, saturday's class all right we've got san antonio we have sharon uh bruce robert okay everybody watching all right let's continue for a little bit longer here we're gonna see how much longer i can go um and this and the rest of this information we just have to get to tomorrow because i have so much here i spent about four hours preparing for today's show and i'm not halfway through the information so <laughs> all right okay so the dolls allotment act you've heard me talk about this before this is where all this history comes together this is why you have to understand the chronology of this history and the history of tulsa is just fascinating um, the Dawes Allotment Act of 1887 authorized the government to divide tribal territories into allotments uh, for individual Native Americans, which included African-Americans. As word spread that Indian territory was a safe place for African-Americans to settle, between 1865 and 1920, more than 50 black townships were founded in Oklahoma. OK, because we found some type of independence out there. This is before uh, Oklahoma became a uh, territory. I mean, it was before it became a state in the union. OK, before it became a state in the union. All right. And then they talk about uh, some of the uh, pioneers in uh, in Tulsa. Uh, a, a wealthy black landowner named O.W. Gurley is commonly referred to as the founder of Greenwood. Born to freed slaves in Alabama, O.W. Gurley was raised in Arkansas and moved to Oklahoma during the Oklahoma land rush of, uh, of 1889. After running a general store in Perry, Oklahoma, O.W. Gurley, a serial entrepreneur, moved to Oil Rush, Tulsa and reportedly purchased 40 acres of land on the north side of the city with the vision of selling residential and commercial plots to African-Americans. O.W. Gurley wasted no time opening a rooming house, purchasing buildings and providing loans to help black people start their own businesses. OK, he's he's one of the pioneers of uh, of uh, Greenwood. O.W. Gurley. Here's a picture of uh, uh, black and white of uh, 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 Greenwood District before 1921. Uh, you see storefronts, telephone wires, and a sign for a dentist's office. Okay, this is from Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. So check out this article here from History.com. Nine Entrepreneurs Who Helped Build Tulsa's Black Wall Street. This is by Alexis Clark for May 14, 2021. We'll talk about this uh, some more over the next few days. Uh, let me see here. Let me go back to my notes. Then, then I want to get to this information um, dealing with um, the 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 plan that uh, Biden laid out. We'll we'll talk some more about it tomorrow. Okay, so Cap Jackson moves to Oklahoma, eighteen ninety nine. 
and let's see, let's pull this up here. This picture here is B.C. Franklin, Father John Hope Franklin, when his law office was destroyed in the race massacre. He set up his law office in a tent and practiced law and uh, dealt with cases trying to where the city ordinance was passed to try to bar us from rebuilding and stated that uh, new structures that uh, were built had to uh, be fireproof. OK, uh, and they're going to fight this case from a tent and uh, win the right to rebuild. Once again, one of the most important, probably the, the most in, in, in all my research that I've done on Black Wall Street, and I've seen most of the, even before these documentaries came out, most of the documentaries on Black Wall Street, I've, I've seen them. Um, the most amazing thing that I found Maybe the two most amazing things. One dealing with the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866. Because when I was researching this in 2014 to find out this information, I called Dr. Claude Anderson and told him about the connection between the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties and Black Wall Street, because he didn't know about it. He knew about the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties, but he didn't know about the connection between the origins of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and those treaties. Okay. Um, so that, but the other thing was we rebuilt. Greenwood after the race massacre. And this is something that I've been talking about. Uh, in the mainstream media, in their coverage of this, they've talked about it a little bit, but not as much as I think they should. We rebuilt it and we got help from the surround the surrounding African-American townships. We didn't get government help. Insurance companies did not pay on the insurance claims on the businesses and homes. We rebuilt it and it was thriving again in 1926 when Dr. W.B. Du Bois visited Tulsa because he wrote about it. It's thriving in the 50s and 60s, but it's going to be the expressways that come through starting in about 1970. Interstate 244 and U.S. Uh, Freeway 75, they're going to destroy businesses. Homes are going to be taken through eminent domain. And it puts North Tulsa, the Greenwood District, in the condition it's in today. So in the policies that Biden laid out when he spoke in Tulsa June 1st, some of that deals with infrastructure and addressing the damage, acknowledging first the damage that highways have done to African-American communities and addressing that as well. Okay, we talked about the proclamation that Biden did May 31st. Go read that at whitehouse.gov because it's deep, what, what is acknowledged there. Um, and then, because he called for a um, national day of remembrance of uh, the, uh, the 100th commemoration, a national day of remembrance and I forgot exactly how he how he phrased that, but uh, go go check that out. What did he call it? We'll look at that. I have it here. 
Okay, well, let's continue. And he, he, call, he called on America to deal with that history of racism, uh, et cetera. I think I have it. Uh, okay, don't we have it? We still have it pulled up. What was that called? Okay. I'll find it because I have it here. In uh, in these stacks. Let me see. What was that? All right, I have to pull it up here. All right, but let's let's continue. Um, and this at whitehouse.gov as well. Uh, this one right here. Here it is. Go through and read this. We talked about it uh, yesterday, but go through and read the entire thing. A proclamation on Day of Remembrance 100 years after the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, May 31st, 2021. This is at whitehouse.gov under presidential actions. Go read, go read this entire thing. I, 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 I'm pretty sure there's a whole lot of white people, especially white Republicans, upset with Biden admitting, admitting what he lays out here. Okay, the terrorism that was inflicted, things like that. Um, where the heck did I put it? Because I have it. I actually have notes on it. Hold on. I actually have notes written on it. Uh, I'm not sure where I put it. But anyway. Let's continue. I think it's over here. And this stack over here. Yeah, okay, it's over here. I need to get another table to put like all my notes on because I have like a stack of probably about 200 articles to my right uh, <laughs> on the floor here. Okay, if we look at in the paragraph one, I call on the American people to reflect on the deep roots of racial terror in our nation and recommit to the work of rooting out systemic racism across the country. Just, just that paragraph right there is enough to scare a lot of white people who, who say systemic racism doesn't exist, who don't want to deal with systemic racism, who don't want, who don't want to talk about critical race theory, don't want to talk about the history of slavery. That, 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 that right there is enough to scare people. Okay, so read the rest of it. Okay, because it's deep. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's get to you here. 
So let me bring this picture back up of BC Franklin. Um, let's go again. So Indian territory was already populated by Native Americans and African Americans. They have been living there for generations. I'm going back to my notes. This is only page two of my notes from the documentary. The first wave of Af African Americans in Indian territory in Oklahoma came in the 1830s as part of the Indian Removal Act, uh, a.k.a. The, the Trail of Tears. Uh, and, and these uh, Native Americans get pushed off the land of southeastern United States. And you have the Muscogee Creek, uh, Muscogee Creek Indians who are there as well, who, who, who go into Oklahoma. Uh, they got land after the Civil War. They got the Land Allotments, Dawes Allotment Act. Now, this is where you get the term $5 Indian from as well, because when white people find out that this land is being distributed, you had 138 million acres of land that's being redistributed to Native Americans and African Americans. Uh, but they had to anglicize their name. They had to change their name to a English name. They had to anglicize their name. So white people found out about this. So they started paying five dollars to have their names added to the dolls rolls to get some of that land as well. OK, and some and some of these white people in their family, they still have some of that land today. Now, leaders in Oklahoma territory who envisioned it being a, uh, a safe haven for African-Americans uh, set up uh, apart from Confederate states. So they're fleeing from the South and the terror from the South and from these former Confederate states, and they're going into Oklahoma. And they look at this as a safe haven, almost a, uh, a, a, a not necessarily a paradise, but something close to it where you're not dealing with racism. This is before Oklahoma becomes uh, a state. And you have all this opportunity, okay? Um, Edwin P. McCabe. Edwin P. McCabe is, is very famous when it comes to this history in Oklahoma. Uh, he was what's known as a booster. And a booster was somebody who marketed to people outside of Oklahoma especially African-Americans, to come into Oklahoma looking for jobs, looking to own land, et cetera. Edwin P. McCabe advocated for Oklahoma uh, to be a black state, Oklahoma to be a black state. He tried to get, uh, you know, legislation passed in Washington to make Oklahoma a black state. When that didn't happen, he advocated for black townships in Oklahoma. So Oklahoma was the state that probably had the most number of black townships or cities. It had about 50 of them. Uh, Edwin McCabe uh, went on to acquire 320 acres of land, and he founded Langston City, okay? He founded Langston City. So we, we are acquiring this land, a lot of this through those Indian treaties and the Dawes Allotment Act of 1887, and they were founding townships, black townships. African-Americans and Native Americans did not want Oklahoma to become, um, did not want Oklahoma to become a state in the union because they knew 
uh, white people would bring their racism with them and they would be subject to segregation laws. And this is exactly what happened. Okay. They knew that, um, that they would be subject to segregation laws and it would limit uh, many of their opportunities. When you look at, uh, and, and, and white people bring their racism with them, bring their terrorism with them, etc. When you look at Bass Reeves, the legendary lawman Bass Reeves, who it's believed that the Lone Ranger character, the fictitious character of the Lone Ranger, is believed that Lone Ranger is based upon um, the real life of Bass Reeves. Okay. And there's a book, uh, Silver Star, uh, that deals with the history of Bass Reeves. And I've done, I've talked about Bass Reeves in the past in my presentation. Bass Reeves is in Oklahoma. Okay. He's a, he's a deputy sheriff and he's, um, uh, his territories in the Oklahoma area, Indian territory. But Bass Reeves has to uh, retire in 1907 when the uh, state, when Oklahoma, when Oklahoma becomes a state because of uh, segregation laws. Okay, he's not allowed to be a lawman because he's African American. This is when Oklahoma becomes a state in the Union in uh, 1907. I think BlackPass.org has a good article about uh, Bass Reeves. Uh, there's one at History.com also. Biography may have one. For the sake of time, uh, read this one here. This is from history.com. Uh, I think there's a number of articles I've read about Bass Reeves. And I, I've talked about the history of the Lone Ranger and the Lone Ranger uh, radio show. The Lone Ranger radio show originated from the studios of WXYZ Radio here in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, the Lone Ranger, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, and the Green Hornet all came out of the same radio studios. And they had some of the same actors on the different shows. So when you listen to those radio shows, you hear some of the same voices. Uh, let's see here. Was the real Lone Ranger a black man? This is by Thad Morgan, uh, February 1st, 2018, for history.com and they talk about bass reeves okay out in the oklahoma territory um bass reeves escaped to indian territory under the cover of night uh the indian territory today known today as oklahoma was a region ruled by five native american tribes the cherokee seminole creek choctaw and chickasaw who were forced from their homelands due to the indian removal act of 1830 while the community was governed through a system of tribal courts, the court's jurisdiction only extended to members of the five major tribes. That meant anyone who was part of those tribes 
from escaped slaves to petty criminals could only be pursued on a federal level within its boundaries. It was against the backdrop of the lawless Old West that Bass Reeves would earn his formidable reputation. See, all, all this history is connected. Here's a picture of the legendary Bass Reeves. So it's believed that uh, this is the real person that uh, the character of the Lone Ranger is based upon. Because the Lone Ranger wore uh, two guns. Bass Reeves wore two guns. The Lone Ranger wore a disguise. Oftentimes, Bass Reeves wore a disguise so he could go into uh, amongst the criminals and gather information. Um, the Lone Ranger traveled with a uh, Indian companion named Tonto. Oftentimes, Bass Reeves traveled with the Native American companion, an Indian companion. Um, Bass Reeves also spoke the Muscogee language. He spoke some of the Native American languages as well. And a lot of the people that Bass Reeves arrested did time in the prison in Detroit, Michigan. And we know that the Lone Ranger radio show originates out of Detroit, Michigan. So there's a, there are a lot of similarities between Bass Reeves and Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger gave out silver bullets. Bass Reeves gave out silver dollars as like a calling card. So there are a lot of similarities between them. Okay, um, so let me see something here. Let's go back to this very quickly. Uh, okay, we're about to wrap this up. So African-Americans and Native Americans did not want Oklahoma, did not want Oklahoma to become uh, a state in the union. All right. And let me see, let me pull back up this picture here. This is, uh, this is a picture of African-Americans in, um, black wall street in, in Greenwood, African-American men and women in Greenwood. You see none of the sisters are wearing bonnets. You see the brothers don't have their pants hanging off their behinds. African-Americans African and Native Americans knew that white people would bring their racism with them if Oklahoma became a state in the Union. Jim Crow segregation, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, is what came, terrorism is what came with statehood in 1907. Immediately after statehood takes place, you're going to have these lynchings taking place, this domestic terrorism uh, uh, taking place in Oklahoma immediately after statehood uh, happens. All right. So we'll pick this up there tomorrow with my notes. All right. I'm leaving. That's page three. I still have some more and I have to go back and watch the rest of it and take more notes. I watched, I think, about half hour, maybe 45 minutes. I have five pages of notes. All right, let's continue. 
So if you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App, dollar, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN Show, or through our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. This helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting. We're here six days a week. Also helps uh, me get to and from uh, Atlanta, because I'll be speaking in Atlanta on... Uh, I'll be there June, uh, Friday, June 18th through Sunday, June 20th for the ninth uh, Annual Juneteenth uh, Parade and Festival. And I'll be speaking there as well. I have a vendor booth. I'll be speaking there also. Visit JuneteenthATL.com, JuneteenthATL.com for more information. Uh, it's at Centennial Olympic Park, Centennial Olympic Park. I'll be speaking Saturday and Sunday, 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. in the amphitheater. This is free and open to the public. Uh, they're going to have all types of speakers. Uh, Angie Stone is performing. They have headline acts, uh, martial arts discrimination uh, 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 demonstrations. There'll be usually there's about 100 to 130 African American, Caribbean, and African vendors there. So there's a ton of information going on. There's a ton of things going on. Okay, so check that out. Um, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about, I want you to hear this interview that Andre Perry from the Brookings Institute did dealing with, uh, what's in Joe Biden's plan to combat, uh, the racial wealth gap. Okay. We'll be back in a few minutes. For 25 years, the Black History One-on-One Mobile Museum has carried on the rich legacy of the Black Museum movement in America by showcasing original artifacts of the Black experience at colleges, universities, K-12 schools, corporations, libraries, conferences, and cultural events, making it the most traversed Black History mobile exhibit in American history. Dr. Khalid El-Hakim is the founder of the Black History One-on-One Mobile Museum, and he is a highly sought-after public speaker on topics of black history, social studies, education, museum studies, hip-hop, and race relations. Dr. Khalid was named among the changemakers for NBC Universal's Erase the Hate campaign and listed as one of the 100 men of distinction for black enterprise. He recently founded the Michigan Hip Hop Archive on the campus of Western Michigan University. The Black History One-on-One Mobile Museum is currently scheduling in-person and virtual exhibits nationwide. For more information, please contact Dr. Khalid Al-Hakim directly at 313-645-4197, 313-645-4197, or visit their website at blackhistorymobilemuseum.com. That's blackhistorymobilemuseum.com. You can also email him at bhistory101 at yahoo.com, bhistory101 at yahoo.com. Okay, welcome back to the African History Network show. Uh, if you want to advertise with the African History Network, email us at ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com. ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com. And um, we'll let you know how you can advertise with us. 
in your 30-second and 60-second commercial will air when we, when we rebroadcast these shows uh, also, okay? If you don't have a commercial, we can create one for you. Current promotion, buy one month, get one month free. So uh, on yesterday's show, we, we know that on Tuesday, June 1st, uh, President Joe Biden uh, visited Tulsa to commemorate the 100th anniversary. And one of the things he did, we, we know he gave a speech. We talked about the speech yesterday. One of the things he did was um, laid out a uh, some policies to address the uh, racial wealth gap, to address the racial wealth gap, okay? Axios.com uh, has an article dealing with this. Uh, also, um, Washington Post. Uh, Biden unveils plans to combat racial wealth gap on the anniversary of Tulsa massacre, okay? Uh, this is from June 1st, 2021. I did a whole separate broadcast dealing with this that was about an hour and uh, hour and a half. We'll be rebroadcasting that as well. Okay. So check that out. So there is a uh, fact sheet after yesterday's show. I was doing more research on this and pulling together content for today's show. Uh, at whitehouse.gov, they have a very, very important fact sheet that I want everybody to read. So instead of all this simple Simon ass nonsense that floats around on social media and people talking and have no clue what they're talking about, don't do research. Uh, this fact sheet here lays out the policies. We talked about a lot of these policies yesterday, but this lays them all out one after another. Fact sheet, Biden, Biden-Harris administration announces new actions to build black wealth and narrow the racial wealth gap. This is from June 1st, 2021. Uh, and part of this deals with um, dealing with obstacles pertaining to home ownership for African-Americans. Uh, Andre Perry of the, Book of the Brookings Institute, who helped put together the study dealing with how uh, African-American households have a, uh, how African-American homes have a, uh, are appraised at a value $48,000 less than white homes. And this collectively uh, costs African-Americans $156 billion in lost value, lost wealth. Okay, this article here from uh, Curbed.com deals with that, how a segregation tax is costing black American homeowners $156 billion. So Andre Perry was interviewed by Stephanie Rule on uh, Stephanie Rule Live on MSNBC today uh, to discuss uh, Biden's agenda. And part of the, the information from the study uh, that the Brookings Institute did uh, was referenced in uh, Biden's uh, plan and his speech. Okay, I want to go to this clip here. Just a second here. Idea, no details. Andre, how much do you think of an impact President Biden's plan will have to narrow this? Or at this point, is it just an idea, no details? Well, it's an idea. I think it's a great step in the right direction by establishing an interagency um, task force to examine the issue of home values is a, a good step. And it's also suggesting that HUD will be uh, more active in enforcing um, it, um, acts of discrimination. Um, but it, it really is addressing appraisals, and that's just one factor 
of many that leads to the underpricing of homes. So as, as you know, my, my research found that homes in black neighborhoods are systematically devalued by 23%, about 48,000 per home. Cumulatively, that's about 156 billion in lost equity. And so um, holding people accountable is one thing, how to repair the loss of, um, of, of revenue and um, equity is another. Okay. So that's just an excerpt of the interview. The interview was maybe about five minutes. Andre Perry was also interviewed. Uh, I, was, I was doing research, pulling together content here for this segment of the show. Uh, Andre Perry was also interviewed by Axios.com. Now, Axios had the article from uh, June 1st that we talked about yesterday. Um, this article here. Biden, the Axios had this article as well, but they also had the one dealing with uh, unveiling the uh, plan to combat uh, the racial wealth gap. So Axios had this article here and they lay out um, uh, details. The initiatives will target home ownership and small business ownership, which the White House called two key wealth creators for communities of color. Uh, because disparities, quote, because disparities in wealth compound. Because disparities in wealth um, compound like an interest rate, disinvestment in black families in Tulsa and across the country throughout our history is still felt sharply today, the White House said in the statement. Okay, so read the rest of this. We talked about this in yesterday's show. I'll keep this short. So there was a, let me pull up this other article here for Maxios. Um, so Andre Perry was interviewed and he was, he was asked about the agenda. He gave, um, uh, this is a more in-depth uh, analysis here. Let me cue this up just a second. Yesterday, President Biden was in Tulsa, Oklahoma to mark 100 years since the Tulsa race massacre. While there, he announced a plan to tackle America's racial wealth gap. It's aimed at increasing home and small business ownership in communities of color. Andre Perry is the author of Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. And he's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and is here now with a reality check on the president's plans. Hi, Andre. Hey, thanks for having me. First, this is your life's work researching this topic. If you were going to grade the president's plan that he put out yesterday, what would you give it? I would give it a B. If it was graded on a curve, I would give it an A because so many past presidents really did not do anything in regards to racial equity in terms of, of really establishing policy that provided a full-throated response against racism. And, and this does it. It can go farther, but it certainly acknowledges that racism has played a role in wealth development in this country and that race must also play a role in closing 
these wealth disparities, where we see whites' median wealth at 170,000 compared to just 17,000 for black Americans. So we do need a federal response. And so this response involves everything from federal contracting to entrepreneurs to the problem of black homeowner appraisals. And the plan actually quotes your research on that and says the administration will create an interagency group to try to fix this. Do you think that can fix this problem? Part of the reason why homes in black neighborhoods are underpriced by about 23% compared to the white peers is because of appraisals. Some of that is because of lending practices, real estate agent behavior, and the overall economy. And so you do need an interagency effort to really look at all the different components of that. Certainly the federal government doesn't have control over some of the stakeholders that leads to devaluation, but it may lead to efforts at the state and local levels that will address those shortcomings. Andre, this is a deep problem that's deeply rooted in American history and practices, as you said, that stem from the federal government to state and local governments to the private sector. How much does this plan go about trying to solve these very deep problems in American society? This does do a good job in trying to rid itself of the drags of racism that negatively affect black Americans. What it doesn't do, it doesn't repay the damage that was caused through redlining and other discriminatory practices in housing, in business development, in infrastructure. Um, And that's a major component of the racial wealth divide. How would that be corrected? Oh, reparations. You know, we should not be afraid of the word. In in fact, America is really not against reparations. Um, We've seen reparations given to American Indians. We've seen it in in 9-11 victims receiving some form of reparations. So we believe in reparations. We just don't believe in reparations for black people. And so if if we can get over that, we can see some change in in this country. We can really see a, a closing of the wealth divide. Okay. Okay, so that that's from uh, that's from Axios today. Um, Andre, Dr. Andre Perry, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. Okay, and part of his research was referenced by Biden in Biden's speech on June first, and the the policies uh, that Biden laid out reflect what Dr. Andre Perry was just talking about. Okay, let me flip over here and some of this we're going to, have to talk about tomorrow because uh, I'm over time. Uh, just a second here. Let me update this. Okay. And the article from article from Axios that has this information here. This one right here, Grading Biden's Racial Wealth Gap Plan. Grading Biden's Racial Wealth Gap Plan from Axios.com, A-X-I-O-S. 
that interview is here in this clip, is here in this article. So you can check that out. That's from, um, I think this is June 2nd, 2021. This is from Great and Biden's Racial Wealth Gap Plan. Okay, very quickly, uh, I want to look at this. This is from uh, whitehouse.gov. They have a ton of information at whitehouse.gov, so you don't have to guess. You don't have to repeat stuff from Simple Simon Ask people on social media that don't do research, have no clue what they're talking about. The evidence is there. You can go research this yourself. Uh, fact sheet, fact sheet, Biden-Harris administration announces new actions to build black wealth and narrow the racial wealth, wealth gap, June 1st, 2021. This deals with the policies that Biden laid out in Tulsa. So they have some brief information here about Tulsa. Let me look at this because I printed it out. It's 11 pages that I printed. Need to go by new new toner cartridge. Uh, 100 years ago, the thriving black community of Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, known as Black Wall Street, was ruthlessly attacked by violent white supremacists. An estimated 300 black Americans were killed and another 10,000 were left destitute and homeless. I like the fact that he called them white supremacists. Okay. Um, some some of their descendants tried to overthrow the government January 6th. Uh, <laughs> you can draw a direct line. I'm telling you, I've said this before. I said this uh, on Roland Martin Unfiltered last Friday. Uh, you can tell... Uh, you, you can tell... You should go read. Uh, he deals with um, reparations on page 22 of the agenda, Elliot. Go read it. Uh, you can draw a direct line from June 1st, 1921, Tulsa. You go back two years before that, you can look at um, the Red Summer of 1919 and 25 major race riots across this country. But you can draw a direct line from the Red Summer to Tulsa, June 1st, 1921, the Tulsa Race Massacre. 1923 Rosewood, you can draw a direct line to January 6, 2021 in the insurrection, okay, uh, in the insurrection, okay, page 22 is the last page of the agenda. I've dealt with it numerous times on this show and showed it to people, Elliot, so you need to go do research before you come on here. Um, you can draw a direct line between those uh Answer the, 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 those domestic terrorist actions. All right, and so now some people said um, this should be reparations for people in Tulsa. I agree. That's why on this show we talked about the bill that Representative Hank Johnson, Democrat from Georgia, introduced in the House of Representatives Friday, May twenty first, twenty twenty one, which is reparations for the survivors and descendants of Tulsa. We talked about that here. So I agree with that. Now, H.R. 40, I'm telling you right now, I've said it before, H.R. 40 is not going to, the earliest H.R. 40 is going to pass, the Senate is going to be 2023. Actually, yeah, 2023. It's not going to, you need 60 votes to pass H.R. 40 in, in the House of Representatives. There are only 50 Democrats. If Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema vote for H.R. 40, which they're not, 
But if they do, that means you need 10 Republicans. Name me the 10 Republicans that are going to vote for H.R. 40. This is why the conversation about reparations is good. But if you actually understand the process, that ain't happening. That's why I deal with stuff that's like realistic. See, a lot of people talk about reparations. They can't tell you how to get it. Not realistically. You only have between 173 and 190 co-sponsors in the House of Representatives. How many votes does it take to get any bill passed in the House of Representatives? It takes a simple majority, 218. We dealt with all that here in the show. I interviewed Cam Howard from Incobra. Uh, just a couple of months ago, H.R. 40 passed out of the House Judiciary Committee for the first time in 32 years. They're still trying to get enough votes, enough support to have to go to the general floor for a vote in the House of Representatives. You need 218. You've got between 173 and 190 uh, votes for it right now. You need 218. So if you have 190, you're still 28 short. This is understanding math. This is understanding math. How many Republicans support H.R. 40 in the House of Representatives? Zero. It's only Democrats. You may have a two, you may have one or two independents. It's only Democrats that support it in the House. How many Republicans support it? Zero. So it's even harder to get it passed in the Senate. Because you're going to need 10 Republicans. Name me 10 Republicans that support H.R. 40. Name me five Republicans. Name me five Republicans that support H.R. 40. They don't exist. In, in the, in, that's in the Senate. They don't exist. In the House of Representatives, you remember the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, H.R. 1280, we talked about here. We laid out what's in it. Okay? Went to Congress.gov, showed you what's in the bill, because that's where you go to read bills. Congress.gov. You can go to govtrack.us also to actually read what's in the bill. How many Republicans in the House of Representatives voted for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, H.R. 1280? Zero. 212 Republicans voted against the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act after talking about how bad it was, what happened to George Floyd, and he was... It's so it's so sad and all this stuff. None of them voted for the bill. This is why I said you vote against us, we're gonna vote against you and vote you out of office. So if 212 voted against the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, if none of them in the House or the Senate, no Republicans in the House or the Senate voted for the 1.9 trillion dollar American Rescue Plan, which helped jumpstart the economy, and there and many of many Republicans are in their districts talking about how great the America Rescue Plan is for their constituents and how it's helping restaurants and all this stuff and helping open, open back up the economy, but not one Republican over, uh, out of about 260, not one voted for the bill. If they wouldn't vote for the America Rescue Plan to help white Republicans that voted for them, you think they're going to vote for reparations? You're a damn fool. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to put it to you like that. You're crazy. No, they're not. This is why I deal with reality. This is why I do a whole, a whole lot of talking about reparations, because I know that it ain't happening. 
until the earliest that's going to happen is 2023. HR 40 gets passed. That's the earliest that's going to happen 2023. Because I understand math and I understand who you're dealing with. This is why they have to be voted out of office. And you have to vote people in the office that support these policies. Okay, so let's look at this very quickly here. Because I've got to go. And see, be quite honest with you, some people, um, like you got a lot of people talk about reparations. Once again, like I said, they can't tell you realistically how to get it. And it becomes just like um, a hot topic to talk about, you know. But when it comes to explain to me the process to actually get what it is that you're saying you want, they can't tell you like a realistic process to get it. This is why the people say, who, who, who are against voting but want reparations, I look at them like, you do realize that's a legislative process, right? It's not going to happen through executive order because Article 1, Section 9, Clause 7 of the U.S. Constitution clearly tells you that Congress controls the purse. The ability to tax and spend belongs to Congress. That has to pass through both the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. That's not an executive order. So anybody tells you that's an executive order, they, they, they're lying to you. And you can go to history.house.gov. And we've talked about it here on this show before because this is the type of information we deal with. House.gov is the official website of the House of Representatives. History.house.gov is the history section dealing with the House of Representatives. They also have it with, uh, they also have it at uh, Senate.gov as well. Now, People say, we're going to get paid, we're going to get paid. Explain, explain to me the process. How many votes does it take in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate for you to get paid? Explain to me the process. Uh, this right here. Power purse. All bills for raising revenue should originate in the House of Representatives, but the Senate may propose or concur with amendments. As on other bills, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 7, that's Article 1, Section 7, Clause 1, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 7 of the U.S. Constitution, no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law and a regular statement and account of the receipts and expenditures of all public money shall be published from time to time when we deal with power of the purse right here Congress and in particular the House of Representatives is invested with the power of the purse the ability to tax and spend public money for the national government read, read this right here that's why that has to pass through the House of Representatives and the US Senate it's not going to be an executive order so when people say oh we're gonna get paid we're gonna get paid explain to me the process I'm waiting All right. See, some people, you know, um, when you go like do this research, some people is like, okay, they're in the little kids around, <laughs> tell them get away, tell them okay. For for some of this, when they actually do the research, some of this is like finding out Santa Claus doesn't exist. 
So for all people say we're gonna give reparations, explain to me the process. How you get 218 votes in the House and 60 in the Senate? Unless you can find a way to get around to change the filibuster, but you you gonna need Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema at least to vote for that. They ain't voting for that. You know, so <laughs> so people say legislation has been introduced. Like Jay, legislation was introduced in 1989. That was by John Conyers, congressional uh, uh, 13th congressional district here in Detroit. Legislation was introduced in 1989. HR 40 just passed the House Judiciary Committee for the first time in 32 years. You still don't have 218 votes in the House. At most, you got about 190 right now. Okay, let's continue. We've dealt with all this before. Let's continue. Some people, it hurts their hearts when they find out Santa Claus doesn't exist. Uh, so this is what I want to look at right here. Okay, fact sheet. We'll talk some more about this tomorrow. Let's skip past this. The administration will. So the majority of what Biden talked about with these policies is what the administration can do without going through Congress. The majority of what he talked about is what he can do and the administration can do without going through Congress, all right? So we have to understand that. And I, I totally understand that because it's, um, uh, it's a 50-50 tie in the House if uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema act right and then Vice President Kamala Harris is a tiebreaker. So take action to address racial discrimination in the housing market, including by launching a first-of-its-kind interagency effort to address inequity in home appraisals and conducting rulemaking to aggressively combat housing discrimination. And we deal with home appraisals. You know, we dealt with that here before. Uh, we talked about um, uh, Carlette uh, Duffy, I think it is, the sister in uh, Indianapolis who did the uh, uh, home appraisal and she did three appraisals. The third one was uh, twice as much as the first one. Okay. And that was, that was after she had a white man uh, sit in for her as the homeowner. After she had a white man sit in for her as the homeowner. Uh, where's my stuff on homeownership? I think it's this here. Yeah. Uh, after she concealed her race, black Indianapolis owner's home value more than double. Okay, she got one appraisal for a hundred thousand, uh, one appraisal for a hundred twenty-five thousand, one appraisal for a hundred ten thousand. The third appraisal was for two hundred and fifty-nine thousand dollars. All right, and that's after she had a white man sit in for her. Uh, do we still have it up? Let me pull that one up here. 
There's an article from NBC News. Uh, Carlette Duffy in Indianapolis. So read this article here. Yeah, I, I talked about Congress uh, advancing the uh, slavery reparations bill. That's talking about it getting out of the House Judiciary Committee. It now has to go to the full House floor for a vote. You need 218 votes for it to pass the House of Representatives. The most they have right now is about 190 votes for it. Uh, after she concealed her race, black Indianapolis owner's home value more than doubled. Okay, this is about Carlette Duffy, so check out this article. Okay, let's continue here. But the real uphill battle that people really don't understand is in the Senate. There's only three black people in the entire U.S. Senate out of 100 people, two or, or two and a half, because half the time Tim Scott doesn't act like it. And Tim Scott has already said he's not voting for reparations. So if the black Republican is not going to vote for reparations, how many white Republicans you think are going to vote for it? This is why I don't spend a whole lot of time talking about reparations. Okay, so the action addresses racial discrimination in the housing market, including launching a first-of-its-kind interagency effort to address inequity in home appraisals and conducting rulemaking to aggressively combat housing discrimination. Use the federal government's purchasing power to grow federal contracting with small disadvantaged businesses by 50%. Okay, grow contracting with them by 50%, translating to an additional $100 billion over five years uh, in helping more Americans realize their entrepreneurial dreams, helping more Americans realize their entrepreneurial dreams, okay? Um, let's see here. The administration is also releasing new uh, information regarding uh, Biden's American Jobs Plan proposals to create jobs and build wealth in communities of color. Uh, a new $10 billion community revitalization. Okay, so that this part here is part of the infrastructure plan, which is also called the American Jobs Plan, $2 trillion infrastructure plan. You can read what's in it at whitehouse.gov. A new $10 billion community revitalization fund to support community-led civic infrastructure projects that create innovative shared amenities, spark new local economic activity, provide services, build community wealth, and strengthen social cohesion. $15 billion for uh, new grants and technical assistance to support the planning, removal, or retrofitting of uh, retrofitting of existing transportation infrastructure that creates a barrier to community connectivity, including barriers to mobility, access of economic development, a new neighborhood uh, homes tax credit to attract private investment in the development and rehabilitation 
of affordable homes for low and moderate income home buyers and homeowners. Five billion dollars, five billion for the unlocking possibilities program, an innovative new grant program that awards flexible and attractive funding to jurisdictions that take steps to reduce needless barriers to producing affordable housing and expand housing choices for people with low or moderate incomes. $31 billion in small business programs that will increase access to capital for small businesses and private mentoring, networking, and other forms of technical assistance to socially and economically disadvantaged businesses seeking to access federal contracts and seeking to access federal contracts and participate in federal research and development institutes. Federal contracts are huge. And this is something that I've talked about before. Okay. Federal contracts are huge. And it's important to note that to be able so I, I used to manage an African-American owned company, actually two of them, where we had contracts. Uh, we had uh, city contracts, county contracts, state contracts. Okay. So you have to um, have the, your paperwork in order to be able to take advantage of the contracts. Okay. You have to have your paperwork in order to take advantage of the contracts. Now, the, this is a barrier for a lot of African-American owned businesses. So, a lot of a lot of us got to get with the black chambers of commerce and different things like this, get our paperwork in order so we can take advantage of these contracts. Because a lot of them, a lot of money's made through government contracts. A lot of millionaires make money having government contracts. OK. And this is an opportunity because I, I remember we had uh, city, county and state contracts here in Michigan. Almost all of our employees were African-Americans. The contracts are reallocation of taxpayer dollars. We pay taxes, but we're oftentimes don't get our fair share of these government contracts. And you have to become a vendor of the city, county, state government. You have to become an authorized vendor before you can even bid on contracts. So there's a process you have to go through to become an authorized vendor. A lot of times we get either don't understand the process, don't have the right paperwork and things like this to become an authorized vendor so we can actually bid on contracts. So th those are different obstacles that knock us out of the box. Okay, taking action to end uh, racial discrimination in the housing market. The Biden-Harris administration is announcing additional steps to end discrimination and bias in the housing market. More than 50 years since the Fair Housing Act's passage, access to wealth through home ownership remains persistently unequal. And this is page three. Okay, this is 11 pages. You, you, I'm not going to be able to get through all this today because we're already way over time. Uh, so you, you got to watch the rest of this. I'll read the rest of this. Um, more than 50 years since the Fair Housing Act's passage, access to wealth through home ownership remains persistently unequal. In his first week in office, uh, President Biden issued a memorandum directing the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to address discrimination in our housing market. 
Today, the administration is announcing that it is taking critical steps towards realizing the president's directive. HUD has now sent both its proposed rule, both its proposed rule on countering housing practices with discriminatory effects and its proposed interim final rule on the legal duty to affirmatively uh, further fair housing to HUD's congressional uh, authorizing committee in the Senate and the House of Representatives for review and will publish them in the Federal Register next week. Okay, read the rest of that because uh, it's long. Now, okay, they talk about Brookings Institute. Additionally, the Biden-Harris administration is taking on discrimination in home appraisals and home appraisals. A 2018 Brookings study that we just talked about in Dr. Andre Perry talked about this as well. A 2018 Brookings study found that homes in majority black neighborhoods are often valued at tens of thousands of dollars less than comparable homes in similar but majority white communities. And the crisis is worsening and the crisis is worsening. A recent study found that the gap between the appraised value of homes in predominantly white neighborhoods compared to comparable homes in predominantly black and Latino neighborhoods nearly doubled between 1980 and 2015. The impact of those disparities uh, in home appraisals can be sweeping, limiting home ownership's ability to properly benefit from refinancing or reselling their homes at higher valuations and thereby contributing to the already sprawling racial wealth gap, okay? Uh, Biden is charging Secretary of housing and urban development and urban development Marsha Fudge with leading a first of its kind interagency initiative to address inequity in home appraisals. The effort will seek to utilize quickly the many levers at the federal government's disposal. Okay. The effort will seek to utilize quickly the many levers at the federal government's disposal, including potential enforcement under fair housing laws, regulatory action and development of standards and guidance in close partnership with industry and state and local governments to root out discrimination in the appraisal and home buying process. These are the kinds of policies and practices that keep black families in Greenwood, that, that keep black families in Greenwood and across the nation from building generational wealth through home ownership. Okay. Then they talk about using the government's purchasing power to drive an additional $100 billion to small disadvantaged business owners. We talked about that briefly. So read the rest of this. I'm out of time here. I don't have time. We've done two hours. Read the rest of this. I'm on page uh, four out of like 11. Okay. So this goes through, lays out all the policies here. All right. This is at whitehouse.gov. So you can check this out yourself. Um. All right, be sure to register for the online course that I teach on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understand the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. We do a thousands of years of history and what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. Uh, it's at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, and also our YouTube, uh, uh, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, we do the classes live, uh, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can watch from around the world. All the sessions are recorded. You can go back and watch it over and over again. If you'd like this type of information, you can support the African History Network 
uh, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, and also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show.